This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. Rosenstruck steams the ream. Mitchell lands a rare twister. Dana White drops hints about an agreement with Floyd Mayweather. Henan Brow and Liz Carmouche get released. And three championship belts are on the line this weekend. We are joined by UFC welterweight champion Kamaru Usman, who is looking for his first title defense, and Ben Saunders, who faces Matt Brown at UFC 245 on Saturday. Thanks for those listening to the podcast. Please subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe, leave some positive feedback on iTunes. And to those listening on TSN Radio in Toronto and Ottawa, hello. Thank you for listening to us, uh, hopefully on a weekly basis. We appreciate it. No Joe this week. He's just getting back from China, and I'm leaving soon to Las Vegas. So we are uh, in, I guess, uh, purgatory, so to speak, in terms of uh, being at the same place at the same time. I need to let Joe get some rest because uh, that, that time change is no joke. You're in, like, China for, like, three days or four days, and then you have to come back here, and you just, like, you lose a day on the flights. That's, that's no fun. It's no fun. I can do the Pacific, you know, time change, no problem. It's easy for me now. It's like clockwork. I leave at night, land late at night on the West Coast, and late at night on the West Coast is like 1 a.m. Eastern time. So I nap on the plane, and I just get adjusted right away. So let's talk about this past weekend. Main event, five rounds of heavyweight action. How often does uh, a fight like that go the distance? When you got heavy hitters like Jair Rosenstrike and Alistair Overeem. Alistair Overeem seconds away from getting the win over Jair Rosenstrike. But Rosenstrike lands the last strike, the strike that matters. Severing the lip of Alistair Overeem, who had to undergo plastic surgery within the next 24 hours after absorbing a, a heavy, heavy shot from Jair Rosenstrike. Rosenstrike, he walked off after he landed that as if he was certain he was going to win the fight. And Overeem got back up. Now, Dan Murgliata stopped the fight, even though there were six seconds left. But that's a ballsy move by Rosenstrike. And I think a move that actually probably helped expedite the referee finishing the fight. Because you would think that if his back is turned and his opponent's first instinct isn't to chase after him and try to level him, that his opponent is probably out of sorts. And I think Murgliata read that and decided to call off the fight. Now, Murgliata could have just stood there and said, fight, fight, you know, and Overeem would have won. You know, unless it was a 10-8. If it, I think if it was a 10-8 on two cards, or even three of the judges' scorecards, if all of them would have scored that last round of 10-8 because of that shot, I think it might have been a draw, because Rosenstruck got round four on two of the judges' scorecards, so let's do a little bit of math here. That would have made him down 39-37 on two cards going into the fifth round. So then if you make that... Two ten eights. That could have been the third majority draw on the card. That would have been pretty crazy. Three majority draws. We had two of them. We had Cynthia Calvillo against uh, Marina Rodriguez. Rodriguez getting the better of the striking for the first two rounds. Calvillo landing a takedown and keeping Rodriguez down for much of the fifth round, but also landing pretty vicious grounded pound that almost led to the fight being stopped. Rodriguez able to weather the storm, but still loses a 10-8 round on... The judges, two of the judges' scorecards. One judge gave it a 10-9 round, I believe. And then there was a, another majority draw earlier on in the, uh, the evening when we had 
Cody Stamen and Song Yudong. Yudong deducted a point in the first round. And I guess two of the judges gave Yudong the first two rounds. And Stamen obviously won the third round. Now, a lot of people were upset about this decision and thought that Stamen should have won the fight, especially given the point deduction. But, you know, I, I want to play devil's advocate. I had it for Stamen. Let me just preface it by saying I had a 29-27 Stamen. But if you gave Yudong those first two rounds, I can't fault you. Like, I don't think that those rounds were runaway rounds for either individual, which means that it's kind of, you know, it's at the discretion of the referee. If you prefer the more effective striking of Yudong in those first two rounds versus some takedowns that were uh, eventually stifled pretty quickly by Yudong, you know, Yudong able to get up pretty quickly, and striking that wasn't quite as good by Stamen, you kind of have to weigh those two. You have to weigh whether you thought Yudong's striking was better in those first two rounds and that the takedowns weren't worth more points than the effective striking of Yudong, which I believe is the first criteria of scoring is effective striking. So if you're looking at effective striking, I can see how, again, I, I didn't do this, but I can see how a judge would have given Yudong those first two rounds. And if you give him those first two rounds and then you take the point away, it's 28-28. Two of the judges saw it that way. So, I, you know, I get it. Now, Stamen said something interesting after the fight that I thought resonated really well with me, which was, do the judges look at the odds before the fight? And if so, does that give them a skewed view of who the favorite is supposed to be, who is supposed to win the fight, so to speak, or who the public thinks is going to win the fight, because that's how the lines work. But, I mean, when the lines open they will suggest that one fighter has a better chance of winning the fight than another fighter. And then, you know, the public will decide where that line goes. But if you looked at it on fight day, so to speak, Yudong was a two-to-one favorite. So judges, like fighters, like referees, have egos. Everybody, like all humans, have egos. And if you're a judge and you don't want to be ridiculed for making a bad decision, sometimes that could play a factor. You could look at who is supposed to win the fight, and get swayed by that. You could look at it and say, I, you know, here is how this fight is supposed to play out. It's supposed to be won by Yudong this percentage of times, whatever, 60 or 65%, whatever minus 200 translates to. So sometimes that can play into your psyche. Who knows? And I think Stamen raises an interesting point by saying that, and I, I'm, I'm interested to, to hear him elaborate on that at some point in time, but... I thought that that was a very interesting take. Because that can, like anything, bias somebody who's making a decision. You know, if you run a stop sign because you've never seen a cop at an intersection before, your perception of whether you're going to get a ticket is biased. It's biased based on experience. So if you see that a fighter is supposed to win a fight... You, you, know, you are biased by the fact that they are supposedly better than the other fighter based on what the odds indicate. So I think Stamen raises a valid point and an interesting point. Rosenstrike, going back to the main event, calls out Francis Ngannou afterwards. You got to love that. You gotta, if, you're, if you're a UFC brass and you have a guy that was on the brink of losing, lands a Hail Mary KO, and then calls out one of the scariest guys in the division, somebody who we've been calling out all week, mind you, but after that performance, which is a little shaky, a little bit shaky, calling out the scariest guy in the division, you got to be smiling ear to ear when you hear that. And I think that uh, 
That's an interesting fight. That's a fight that would be cool to have in Africa, but I, you know, obviously I don't think the UFC is making inroads there yet, but you have two heavyweights of African descent. That would be a great headliner if they did a card in Africa, but I, I don't think that's on their radar at the moment, but uh, I, I think that would be a cool fight to have in that locale. So uh, I thought that that main event was, was pretty, pretty good, man. You know, like, like I said before the card started, I did my uh, Periscope that I do Every week, I did it with Dan Tom, who's a frequent guest on the Periscope, my most frequent guest, because I think that he sees fights differently, and he's really good as somebody who is an experienced martial artist himself, has a very good knack for breaking down these fights. I think he's one of the best in the space when it comes to breaking down the X's and O's of fights. And I was saying to him, I thought that, and I, I say this often, I thought that Rosenstruck had the best way to win, but that Overeem had more ways to win. And I think that that was... On display in this fight. I thought that Overeem landed the crisper strikes. Rosenstruck the more powerful strikes. Uh, although Overeem certainly did land some powerful strikes. Strikes that would have put out a lot of other people in the division. Overeem mixing it up with takedowns. The most takedowns he's landed in the UFC fight to date. And uh, Rosenstruck threw with more power. And that power eventually translated in the fifth round. And you got to hand it to Rosenstrike. Rosenstrike's entire MMA career was barely 25 minutes combined. And he went almost 25 minutes with, with Overeem, you know, stayed for four seconds. Went 25 minutes with Alistair Overeem. And he was fresh. I mean, he landed. His power translated in the fifth round. Overeem didn't look like he was tiring out. Overeem's been there before. He's been in deep water. He's been in the fifth round. At least I think he has. I'd be surprised if he hasn't. I'm going to go and look just to make sure. I don't want to I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I'm pretty sure he's been. Oh, maybe not. This was the first time Overeem has been. That's shocking to me. He's been in five-round fights, but this is the first time he's gone actually into the championship rounds. That's surprising to me. Interesting. Especially given how many, how, how many times he's been a champion, how many times he's been in the main event. Hmm. Well, there you go. Learn something new every day. So Overeem's also first time in the championship rounds, but he's, uh, you know, he showed the, uh, the cardio. He showed that he had the uh, ability to stick with it. He trains at elevation. You know, he's, he's conditioned for longer fights, for more cardio. And uh, Rosenstrike was able to land that last blow, and uh, it put Overeem out. And I mentioned this on Twitter. Overeem is a stud. Like, he's... The guy's a legend. Loses to Nganu in the way that he lost. And I, I think I said this on last week's show. He was walking around backstage like an hour later, smiling. After that, one of the most vicious knockouts you'll ever see. Then he gets that ground and pound KO by Blades where there's blood coming out of his, like just blood keeps coming out of him as Blades lands more and more shots from on top. And then almost immediately after that fight, he decides to move his camp to elevation in Denver and train with Blades. Blades invites him after the fight, says, come train with me. He says, sure. And he's been training there ever since. And then after this fight, a fight that he was winning, that he was on the verge of winning, four seconds away from winning, Gets his lips split open and is smiling after the fight and making jokes. That's a sportsman right there. Now you can point at Overeem and you can point at the fact that he was big at a certain point of his career and say that was not sportsmanlike, but he's never failed a USADA test. So, you know, you have to at least imagine he's playing by the rules. So I, I get that some people might take exception to calling him a sportsman, but based on that evidence... The guy's a sportsman, man. 
We also had uh, Marine Rodriguez, Cynthia Calvillo go to a majority draw. I mentioned uh, that was one of the majority draws on the card. Calvillo looked good when, when she was able to get it to the ground. I mean, when she was she was not winning on the feet. And Rodriguez was training in Thailand and landed some... She, I mean, could you tell she was training in Thailand? Some crazy clinches, great knees, really picking Calvillo apart on the feet. But when it got to the ground, Calvillo was able to impose her will. Now, Rodriguez, after the fight, said she was disappointed that Calvillo missed weight. She didn't want to jeopardize the co-main event, so she took the fight at a catch weight, 120 and a half pounds. And said that the, the extra weight mattered when she was on the ground. That when Calvillo was on top, she could feel that extra weight. Now, you could use that as a, an excuse because Calvillo did miss weight. And you can, that's a valid one. But, you know, you can say that as a, um, a way of deflecting from the fact that just on the ground she wasn't there. She wasn't as good as Calvillo. And that's going to be Rodriguez's kryptonite in this division if she can't shore that up. But Rodriguez, uh, she has a bright future. She is really good on the feet. And Calvillo does too. I think people forget that uh, Calvillo, I think, is a contender in this division, even though she's, she's starting to get up there in age, 32 years old, she's relatively new to the UFC. Rodriguez is also 32. Only a couple months apart. Rodriguez is actually older by a couple months. But Rodriguez was mostly doing uh, Muay Thai, from what I understand. And then uh, transitioned over to the UFC. So she's had four UFC fights. 50% of them have been majority draws. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's pretty odd. One of the most dominant fights you'll ever see was Billy Quarantillo versus... is Quarantillo, actually, I believe he pronounces it. Uh, there's only one L there. Billy Quarantillo against Jacob Kilburn. That was a beating. I said that that first round was a 10-7 round because there was just like not a second where Kilburn was having success in that first round, and Quarantillo almost got him out of there on like four or five occasions. That's as dominant a performance as you'll see. In fact... The first six fights on the card were just dominant. Joe Selecki, dominant win over Matt Wyman. Virna Jandaroba gets the submission over Mallory Martin. Mahmoud Muradov lands a, a punch with less than a minute left, spins Trevor Smith around, ends up winning a performance bonus. Muradov managed by Floyd Mayweather, the only uh, UFC fighter managed by Floyd Mayweather who we will get to later on in the program, as much as I hate talking about it, but we will talk about it. You heard my, uh, my, my rant at the end of the last episode, if you were listening to it. But I'm not, again, I think that this is a boxing thing. I'm not going to, until I hear that this is an MMA thing, I'm just going to assume that this is a boxing thing and that Mayweather's going to be boxing a boxer. At least I pray to the uh, combat god that that's the case. Aspen Ladd with a great performance against Yana Kuniskaya. After the second round, her coaches are berating her, saying, punch her in the expletive face. And they were saying it over and over and over again. And what did uh, Aspen do in the third round? Walked towards Yana Kuniskaya and punched her in the expletive face, knocking her down and then finishing with punches on the ground. It's fun saying expletive instead of the swear word. It actually feels like it, it resonates more. Unless you use your imagination. Use your imagination, people. And then, uh, if you want to get weird, Ben Rothwell scores a finish with three seconds left in the second round over Stefan Struve. Now, Ben Rothwell knocking out Stefan Struve isn't anything strange, but the uh, conditions in which it happened, the terms in which it happened, are uh, interesting to say the least. 
Rothwell lands a vicious groin strike in the first round, drops Stefan Struve, who uses the full five minutes to recover. And the, the, the crowd in Washington, I've never heard this before, they're booing and then cheering and then booing and then cheering. I don't know if this is a Washington, D.C. trademark. Might have to ask my uh, colleague Luke Thomas, a Washington native, or at least a Washington resident. I think he's from Georgia. But I've never heard that before. They were booing and then cheering and then booing and then cheering, like a, up, up and down for about five minutes while Struve recovers. Second round, Rothwell lands another vicious groin strike, gets a point taken away. Now, Struve could have exited, but the referee, Dan Mirgliotta, this is about three or three minutes into the second round, I'd say, roughly. Mirgliotta says to Struve, if you don't continue, this is going to be a no contest, and I think you're winning two rounds. Now, who is Dan Mirgliotta to tell a fighter to continue fighting because they're up two rounds? That is one of the, the, the most ludicrous things, most outrageous things I've seen a referee do, and, and referees do outrageous things all the time. In this sport. This is not an anomaly. And Dan Mirgliotta, I think, is one of the better referees in the sport. One of the, at least one of the more experienced referees in the sport. To tell a fighter, they think that they, he thinks that they are up two rounds and he should continue. Otherwise, it's going to be a no contest. Like, ended up knocking Struve out. Who knows how that's going to affect his life? Got knocked out badly in a hev- at a heavyweight weight class. Against a, a guy who hits hard in Ben Rothwell. The king of Kenosha. Who is Dan Mirgliotta to tell Stefan Struve that it's in his best interest to continue after he's absorbed two vicious groin strikes? I, I've just never seen anything like that before. That's, that's ba- like baffling to me. Another thing I've never seen anything like before, although I've seen it once before in the UFC, which was when uh, the Korean zombie who's headlining a card against uh, Frankie Edgar, which we will discuss. I think I might have discussed it on last week's show. I, I can't even remember what I, what's being discussed. And what's not. I think I discussed Edgar replacing... Ortega. If not, maybe I'll talk about it a little bit later on. But Bryce Mitchell lands the rare twister against Matt Sales. Now, Sales missed weight, 148 and a half pounds. But uh, Mitchell apparently had a, one heck of a weight cut. It was like 165 three days before the fight because he wanted to be as bulky as possible. He felt he was giving up size in the UFC, in, in the featherweight division. And he lands that twister on Matt Sales. Bryce Mitchell's one of the, the craftiest guys on the ground in the UFC. He's, just a, he's got a, a real arsenal. When I asked him on last week's show, if you listened to the show, hopefully you did, if he's got a lot of submissions in his arsenal, he says, those are top secret. He goes, I could kill a man with one finger. But he said that he had a, a pretty deep submission arsenal, all of which was top secret. Well, one of those secrets has been revealed, the twister, which he claims he learned on YouTube from an Eddie Bravo video. Eddie Bravo... I'm sure smiled when he heard that. So uh, Bryce Mitchell gets a, a, a fun win. And then uh, Rob Font versus Ricky Simone, I should mention, because that was one heck of a barn burner. Two of the uh, up-and-coming 135ers. And Rob Font said that he was promised a, a, a quick turnaround by uh, Sean Shelby, which leads a lot, led a lot of people to believe that uh, perhaps he'll be filling in against uh, Corey Sandhagen. Now that Edgar has... Not, he hasn't... I mean, that spot is still technically... Edgar's still... They're still promoting it as if Edgar's going to be fighting Sandhagen. It's kind of, they're taking a kind of wait-and-see approach, which I think is strange because that fight is like a month separated from him fighting the Korean Zombie. I noticed that Korean Zombie's a favorite in that fight. I, I don't agree with that. I think Edgar should be a favorite in that fight. But uh, 
I don't make the lines. I just read them and analyze them. And my analysis is that that line is incorrect. But we'll, we'll find out whether I'm correct about that notion in uh, just a couple weeks' time. In two weeks, we'll have the answer to that question. As we await the Christmas holidays in two weeks. Hope everybody's done their Christmas shopping. Black Friday had uh, a lot to offer this year. Now, let's uh, move on. As uh, we will talk about this uh, Floyd Mayweather thing, I'm going to gloss over it a little bit. It's just, I just want to mention that Dana White was on uh, Jim Rome's show and mentioned that he, he, he didn't even know he was going to be sitting beside Mayweather. Ari Emanuel offered him tickets to the, uh, the uh, Celtics game. He thought they were playing the Lakers. They were playing the Clippers. And he was seated next to Floyd Mayweather, of all people. And right there and then, at the game, they hashed out a deal. Shook hands at center court. And the details of this deal are sparse. But what we do know is that uh, Dana White says he wants to negotiate with Al Heyman in March and hopefully have something that is uh, going to happen, uh, an event of some sort, in October or November of next year. I can hardly wait. No, I can wait. All right, let's move on to uh, some other news. Hennon Brow, former UFC bantamweight champion, who was undefeated for something like seven years, uh, has lost, I think it's seven of his last eight, and has been released from the, uh, the UFC. Not a surprise. But the surprise to me was uh, Liz Carmouche. Her last fight was for the championship. Gets released after... Uh, losing to Valentina Shevchenko in one of the uh, least eventful championship fights uh, in some time in the UFC. I don't understand what her game plan was in that fight, but I, I also don't, under, don't understand her getting released. Why not have her as a, a gatekeeper in that division? She can still win fights. She's still a good fighter. But the weird thing about it was that she was in Washington, D.C. doing promotional work as a, as a veteran, an Army veteran, for the UFC when she finds out she's been released. It's not a good move. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't think that that was uh, intentional. I think that whoever decided to release her probably didn't know that she was there on promotional. Um, you know, they have people in the UFC that do all kinds of roles. You know, you've got somebody who does marketing. You've got somebody who does matchmaking. And even if there was an email that went out saying, oh, these five fighters are out, you know, doing promotional work for us, you can't expect the matchmakers to know everything that's going on. They, I mean, they've got, a, they've got a lot to focus on. They've got to focus on making sure the roster is a certain size, making sure that the different fights are scheduled to happen when they happen. And, you know, I, I think this is probably an oversight, so you don't want to look too much into it, but it is a bad, uh, from a PR standpoint, you've got, you got to imagine that's not a good look. UFC 245 this weekend, headlined by three championship fights. All of which are very competitive, in my opinion. Let's start from the top. You got Kamaru uh, Usman against Colby Covington. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. I'm going to find out later on when I speak to him about what the full, the true pronunciation is. I think it's Kamarudin Usman is probably how it's, his full name is pronounced. Taking on Colby Covington, defending his title against Colby Covington, who. Still walks around with his own belt. I mean, he never lost the interim title. Was technically stripped of it, but uh, never lost it. At least in, in the octagon. So many things in common here. Both guys 15-1. and one. Same record. Same style. 
This is going to be a very, very interesting matchup. Now, I was looking at uh, some of the statistics because I think from the statistics, because of how similar these guys are, you can kind of glean how this fight is going to look on paper. Who has what advantage? They fought very similar opponents as well. They fought a lot of uh, the same opponents. So their average fight time, 15 minutes and 55 seconds for Usman. 13 minutes and 54 seconds for Covington. Usman, I believe, has been more five-round fights, so that makes sense. Knockdown average for 15 minutes, 0.28 for Usman, 0.1 for Covington. The average in the UFC is 0.29, so Usman's right around the average, or Covington below average. Striking accuracy, 54% for Usman, 37.6% for Covington. Strikes landed per minute, 4.2 for Usman, 3.9 for Covington. So if you look at the accuracy rates, that obviously means that uh, Covington is throwing a lot more. He's, uh, he's attempting a lot more because the, the strikes landed per minute are very similar. But uh, you look at the percentages and Usman throws like about 18% higher. More than that, actually. Sorry, less than that. 60, uh, I'm bad at math. Sorry about this, folks. 16% or so better than Covington. So with them landing a similar amount of strikes landed per minute, especially with uh, Usman having the longer fight time, you have to believe that Covington is just throwing a lot more volume, even though Usman in his own right is, is very good with volume. Striking defense, 57.7% for Usman, 56.9% for Covington, so that's virtually a wash. Stri- strikes absorbed per minute, 1.6 for Usman, 2.35 for Covington. So again, longer fights for Usman, so Usman is not uh, absorbing as much punishment as Covington is in the fight. Take that accuracy, almost that even again, 50.6%. Usman, 51.8% Covington. Take down average per 15 minutes, 3.96 for Usman, 5.69 for Colby Covington. So Covington averages a lot more takedowns in a, in a fight. Almost uh, two more per fight. At least per 15-minute fight. Takedown defense, 100% for Usman. 78.3% for Covington. So Covington is more susceptible to the takedowns. Now, I don't know how many people have attempted takedowns against Usman versus Covington. That would be interesting to look at. And submission averages per 15 minutes are, again, a virtual wash, 0.19 for Usman, 0.2 for Covington. So the reason I bring these all up is because you have to just look at just, just how similar these two fighters are. It's wild. Even the intangibles, like Usman's an inch taller, has about a four-inch reach advantage, a year older. Their their UFC records, their UFC only records, 10-0 for Usman with one knockout, one sub, and eight decisions. 10-1 for Covington, two knockouts, two subs, and six decisions. So Covington has finished more fights, but still, like, most mostly trending towards decisions. So it's just shocking how similar these two fighters are. It's very, very... Jarring to see, jarring almost to see just the similarities between these these two fighters. It's it's remarkable, really. And I keep saying, I just think whoever is the better fighter that day, whoever is just more on that day, has the better chance of winning. Like I, I think this is almost a total wash, almost a stalemate. I think this fight's going to be mostly contested on the feet. But here's the thing about Covington's volume that is going to be interesting because. If you look at Covington's previous opponents, Lawler, not looking for takedowns. Los Angeles, probably looking for takedowns more often. Maya, 
looking to grapple, but not not looking for takedown, so to speak, against a, a guy like Covington of, of Covington's ilk in terms of his takedown percent, uh, takedown um, defense, and his wrestling acumen. Dong Young Kim, not you know more of a judo practitioner, not going to have a ton of success taking down Covington. So these are these are fighters that he's fought that don't have very very high level takedowns. Usman is is the opposite. Usman has very very strong takedowns that I think will uh, make it harder for Covington to throw the kind of volume that he's accustomed to, because the more volume you throw, the more openings you're going to leave for takedown attempts. And I think that that is going to slow the volume down of, of Covington just a little bit. Now, I think that Usman is going to have a bit of a power advantage. Although, if you look at, again, the KO victories, Covington has more of them. But I do think that Usman has more power. So that's going to be interesting because that's going to be opened up as well by the wrestling. Now, that said, Usman's volume is also going to be stifled a little bit by the, the wrestling of Colby Covington. Usman's never been taken down in the UFC, but who has he fought? I mean, Woodley, I guess, is an example A of who he's fought. I mean, he went five rounds with Woodley and didn't get taken down. So, I mean, well, I, I might want to slow slow that train down just a little bit, but he hasn't really fought great wrestlers in the UFC aside from Woodley. Dos Anjos, very good wrestler, but not, you know, D1, D2 level, Olympic, you know, Olympic qualifier level like Usman. Yakov Lev is a good wrestler, but not, again, the kind of credentials that Usman has. I thought it was funny recently Joe Rogan said um, that every now and then he'll be driving in his car and think about the referee standing up Maya when he had Usman's back and just scream. <laughs> I think about that all the time too. I really do. Because I thought Maya had a, had a solid uh, advantage in the fight if he was able to somehow get close enough to Usman to, to get him into position. you know. And he, he had a good position on him and the referee stood them up. It, it's shocking to me. Knowing that that's where Maya works from, where Maya is most dangerous, the referee breaks that up. It still, to this day, annoys me. Just like Joe Rogan. I think about it often. But I think that this match is, this is one of the most intriguing championship fights in some time just because I don't know what to expect. This fight could go either way. I think it should be even money. And it's pretty close. And uh, I, I can't wait for it. I'm really, really stoked. I'm excited to be in Las Vegas this week covering this event. So before we get uh, further down the card, let's go to our guest. He is the UFC welterweight champion of the world. He is Kamaru Usman, and he joins us now on the TSN MMA Show. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce this week's guest. I'm joined now by the welterweight champion of the world, Kamaru Usman. Kamaru, you're out in, uh, in New York doing some media. You excited about this week? I am. I'm more than excited that it's finally here. UFC 245, I, I can't wait. Now it's my time to be that marquee fight, to be that guy headlining. So I'm excited. You know, I've told this story before. When you were on The Ultimate Fighter, uh, Rory McDonald came to TSN, and he was with Faraz Zahabi. And I asked Faraz if he was watching this season of The Ultimate Fighter. And he said no. And I go, there's this guy, uh, Kamaru Usman, on the show who reminds me so much of GSP. You should check it out. He's like, okay, I'll check it out. And I, I make a lot of predictions. A lot of them are wrong. But this one was, was pretty accurate. You're, uh, you're one, now the top welterweight in the world. Yeah, um, I think it, it, it's besides just being a fighter too. I think a, a lot goes to the mindset and the way that you you look at you know the goal at the task at hand and going out there and being able to execute. Yes, I, I mean some people are 
throwing those comparisons my way, but, uh, you know, GSP is GSP. I mean, one of the greatest. GSP was kind of one of the first hybrids of the sport, the guy that could kind of do it all. And, you know, that's what I aimed to do when I got into the sport. And uh, fortunately, I just got that opportunity through the ultimate fighter to be able to showcase my skill and continue to learn and build. And I always knew that I was going to get to this position, this this part, this this moment in time. It just took a little while for people to realize it. The things that stood out to me was how well you were able to adapt your wrestling for MMA. There are a lot of people with great wrestling credentials that come into the sport that, that don't have the ability to, to really make it work in MMA. And I think you, you have that really uh, rare quality where you've been able to kind of adapt to that. Yeah, I, and I think uh, that's a good point that you make because I think that's going to be a factor in this fight. I think we're going to have to we're going to start to see the difference in wrestling and how people adapt and use their wrestling in, in, in MMA. One thing about your time on the Ultimate Fighter that you haven't discussed that much is that your daughter was very young when you went. You were away for I think five weeks, and your daughter was six months old. And when you, when you got back, she barely recognized you, and that that really. Um, stood out to you, and since then you've really, you really, yeah. And since then you've really um, made made her such a priority because you have to make that sacrifice early on in her life. Uh, t- can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it was, um, of course, the, the thing with being, and that's what I mean, with being on the Ultimate Fighter is, uh, it's such a social exper- experiment. I mean, being locked in, we we as human beings, we don't understand and we don't realize all the. I call them fillers that we go through and we have each and every day. When you're outside, like right now, I'm in New York. There's so much. Like you can hear the taxi cabs, the horns from all, all, all the drivers. You hear all the people outside talking. You hear the, the, the noises in the buildings. You hear all these different things. You've got your phone. You've got the internet. You've got everything. That is distractions that are just all in all fillers in our lives each and every day. But on the ultimate fighter, we got, I got a chance to just be still. You were in this house, locked away, away from the world, away from everybody. There's no sound. There's no music. There's no phones. There's no TV. There's no noise unless you create the noise. And so people, a lot of people go crazy in that atmosphere, in that, in that setting. And one thing that it did was give me time to really think and, and, and understand just kind of the situation that I, that I was in and the moment in life that I was and one part of that was my daughter. My daughter was, uh, I believe, maybe six months, six months old at that time. And this is my daughter that I, I saw every day. And she, when I walk in the room, since the moment she started to kind of look around and realize things, when I walk in the room, the one thing that was super special to me, didn't matter who else was in the room, my daughter's eyes were on me. It was the weirdest thing. She would look at me when I'm in any room. And I would walk around, sometimes I would test her. I would just walk around in circles, walk around with different people there, and her eyes were locked on me, always. And so it was right from that moment, there was a bond that we had. And so then I go off to the ultimate fighter, and I'm just gone. So I'm wondering all the things that are going on in her head, and I'm thinking, this girl is, is sitting at home thinking, where's this man that I love, that I, I stare at every day, that, that's in a room that changes my diaper, that feeds me? that picks me up, that makes these silly noises, that, that, that tickles me. Where's this man? This guy's gone. And I was gone for six weeks, and, and, and that I really was getting to me, especially living in this house with a bunch of guys that I might have to fight. 
and, and having them talk all kinds of trash and different things to me. I'm thinking about all of that, those things. And then the moment we get a chance to see them, and then I saw how different, like she, she already was giving me attitude at, at, at eight months. My daughter was already giving me attitude and she was just, I could, I just felt that she was mad at me. Like, where have you been? I've been looking, I've been looking for you and you haven't been around for the last, you know, five or six weeks. And it just, man, I couldn't help but kind of break down at that moment. I think they, they actually shot that and they put it out. And I, I just, I, I, I couldn't help but cry at that moment because I'm like, man, this is a girl that when I walk in the room, she lights up. And now I felt like she, she kind of was kind of down about it because she was wondering where I was at the whole time. Yeah. It's amazing. Those moments. Then you, then you think back that's in 2015 and then four years later, you're in the cage, sharing the cage with her. She's four years old now and you're, you're the champion. Like it's pretty crazy how that must seem like it must have seemed like it happened so quickly. I'd imagine because the, the struggle to get into the UFC is probably what feels like the long part. And then when you're in it, you're just you're in it. Is is that how it felt? Yeah. Did it feel that fast? Uh, no, no, not necessarily. Because there were moments in the UFC where, uh, honestly, I thought about quitting, quitting fighting. Because there were moments where I couldn't get a fight. I couldn't get guys to fight me because no one really. Guys really didn't want to take the gamble by fighting me. You had all these top ten guys, and then you have you got all these top guys. This guy's in the top ten, top fifteen, and then you've got a big shark that will eat up all these all of you guys. That's circling the water is around you guys, and nobody wanted to let me in the party. And you know, everyone makes up a different excuse. Oh, he, he needs to beat someone in the top ten first. Oh, he's not a good fighter. Oh, he's boring. Or oh, he's this. Everybody's making all these different excuses because they know that I'm the big dog outside of this club, this top 10, top 15. And once I got in there, I, I just, it was, it was kind of a hassle to get these guys to fight me because they knew what would happen. I would dominate them and eventually I would be the welterweight champion of the world, which is what I am right now. And you and I talked about this when you were coming up. It was just the inability, because of the rankings, and the ranking system I think is very flawed, it seems like they reward who you beat rather than how you beat someone. And I think that that's one of the, the biggest flaws of the rankings because people like yourself that, you know, people that are at the top look at and say, well, why would I, I'm the seventh you know, ranked fighter in the world. Why would I fight a guy who's not ranked or ranked 14th and, and jeopardize my standing when, you know, they don't have as high of, it's, it's like currency almost. Um, and I, I just exactly. think that that's such a major flaw that they look at who you beat rather than how you beat someone. Yes, and that's it's it's kind of frustrating in a sense. But at the end of the day, you know what what we just me and my team what we decided to stick with is just go out there and execute and, and take care of business. And that's what we did. You know, me and my team just kept working. You know, he, you know my manager did definitely said eventually you know this will come to fruition. Let's just keep working and let's just keep winning. And that's what we did. We kept working, we kept winning, and look where we're at now. How close were you to actually walking away? Where were some moments where you needed moments of clarity? Very close. I was very close. Before um, before I eventually got the Santiago Ponzinibbio fight, which ended up not happening, I was very close because I, I had like a long, maybe five, actually longer than that, maybe six, seven months of just sitting there trying to get somebody to fight. And the organization said, oh, no, that guy turned it down. Oh, that guy turned it down. That guy turned it down. I was just like, man, you know what? 
there's no point. And, and part of that, and part of that is my opponent that I'm fighting. He has been offered to me several times, and 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 four times to be exact. And he's turned them all down. He's turned them all down. Turned them all down. And so, you know, that this is part of what contributed to my frustration at that point. So I'm like, man, you know what? I should just walk away and go get a job because these guys won't fight me, and the organization is not necessarily taking the steps and the efforts to get these guys to fight me. Then, you know, I should walk away. And that was after you made that speech as well that Dana White ripped, where you said you this is you know you only had thirty percent that night. That not that you were fighting at thirty percent, but that's your health was basically thirty percent. But it got misinterpreted as if you were putting in thirty percent effort. Exactly, exactly. It, you know, I, the frustration already was you know coming up before that fight because even after you know even before that, like I, I had already you know been in there. I, I'm around that, like I said, swimming around those top ten guys. And I'm asking for this guy, asking for that guy. I'm giving the same excuse because they know, like, they don't want to take that gamble of fighting someone like myself. And and then I end up getting a guy that's, I think, I believe, 2-0 and in the UFC. So I'm like, this guy's not even, hasn't proved himself. Even though I know he's a dangerous, tough opponent, hasn't proven himself. And, and then, you know, after the fight happened, and I'm like, you know, simple as that, man. I, you know, I came in here hurt, you know, less than 100%. And I was still able to go out there and get the job done on a tough, tough opponent. Guys, give me my respect and, and give me the opponents that I deserve. I was talking before this interview about the similarities between you and uh, Colby. You, you're both 15 and one. You know, both a wrestling background uh, on a collegiate standpoint. Um, similar age. The stats are very similar in a lot of different categories. What's going to be the difference in this fight? What, what do you think is going to be the difference maker for either of you? Oh man, you're right. It's extremely. It's it's so. I don't think ever in the history of the UFC have you got a fight like this. Have you had numbers like this stack up? It's. I don't think it's ever been done. Both guys, fifteen and one. How crazy is it that both won the one loss? His lone loss is to a guy that I completely dominated, and my lone uh, lone loss is a guy that he beat for. Like I don't think that's ever happened. And our numbers are similar in number-wise. But the one thing that people don't understand and people don't seem to realize is, is how we fight, how we approach fighting. Everyone is saying, oh, man, he's got cardio for days. He's got pressure. Yeah, it, it's easy to just throw 100 punches at a, or 1,000 punches at a punching bag. But how do you deal with the pressure when you punch at this guy and he hits you back harder? You punch again, he hits you back harder. You punch again, he hits you back in the mouth harder. At some point, you're going to realize, dang, I can't bully this guy like I bully everybody else. I can't throw a thousand punches and, and set striking attempts record like I do with everybody else. I've got to try a different approach. And, and, and the biggest difference between him and I is our mind, our mental approach. This is a guy that I felt that since he was six years old, that he started wrestling and and. and and, you know, he, daddy needed to be there to hold his hand or, or, or this guy needed to be there. He felt privileged. I didn't. I had to work for everything. I, I, for the first two years of my, my wrestling career in high school, I didn't, my parents didn't know what I was doing. You know, I, I chose to go into wrestling. I chose the hard way. I chose to, to, to choose that over football, basketball, all the other sports. I put myself in this position, and I continue to work and, and motivate myself. So when this fight gets underway, he's going to realize that he's in there with a different opponent with a different mentality. 
And strangely, you guys train 25 minutes apart. I mean, the the gyms are 25 minutes. Do you ever go to like Sawgrass Mills and you're, you know, you you walk around and you see him or see anybody else from ATT? That's the craziest thing is I have never ran into him. Never. Never ran into him. You know, like the one time I ran into him besides the the press conferences and things like that was um, like couple of three years three to four years ago at the airport and that was before he he put on this he became this big character that he put on now that was the only time i've actually ever ran into him so it's so crazy and it's so surreal that we live that close we train that close and i've actually never ran into him colby kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit this past week he was on with candace owens and talked about how after his Dong Young Kim fight, not, you know, he's told the story behind the scenes, so has Dan Lambert. Um, they had said to Dan that they were going to cut him because they, they thought that his style wasn't entertaining, that he wasn't entertaining, he didn't have any personality. And that's when you know, the MAGA hat got put on and this whole character was built. Um, and you know, he really kind of took it to 11. Uh, and now, do, do you feel like this act has kind of taken over? This is who he's become? Because if you talk to a lot yeah. of people, I mean, Kobe's a nice guy behind the scenes. He's, he's always been very respectful to me and to a lot of other people. But when does the act take over? When does the act become who he is? The guy, this, is it. this is my point right now. It, it, it's like, let's not, let's not, he's not going to get away with this. He, he's, he's, he's trying to find a way out right now. He wants, he, these are all excuses. He's putting off the excuse now. He's trying to, to find a way out that, Hey, when this doesn't go my way, I I was just putting on an act. I, I, you guys don't hate me because I was just putting on an act. No, no, you chose to do that. You're a grown man. You have your own mind, your own sense. You chose to do that. You don't don't come out here and say, oh, you're putting on a character now for the people just because you don't want everybody to hate you after I, I sleep you, uh, you know, this weekend. No, don't put that. Don't put that character on. Be the guy. You became this character. You went fully into it. You have no respect for anybody, any culture, any anything, any gender. So be that guy. You don't see The Rock coming out and saying, hey, guys, I'm just doing Jonathan. I'm just pretending to be The Rock. No, he's the character. He's The Rock. You see him as The Rock. He fully embodies that. So Kobe, be that. He's a cop-out. He's basically trying to let you know he understands what's going to happen now, and please don't hate him after he gets knocked out this weekend. And finally, before I let you go, you had spoken previously about potentially starting a foundation. Uh, you, you know, you were born in Nigeria. You lived there for your early years. Uh, and you talked about how your grandmother had to get water that could have had, like, malaria uh, or diseases in it, you know, that needed to get boiled off in order to cook, do laundry, all of that kind of stuff. Um, how is that coming along? Are you, have you made any strides towards putting that together as of yet? Yeah, we, we were definitely, you know, making strides to kind of finalize it. And, and you know, the 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 problem well not necessarily a problem but a very important thing with something like that is focusing and targeting the goal of what you really want done and how you want to assert that change and 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 carry it out so that's what we really want to do we want to pinpoint what we want because you don't want to just go in and do something here and there and really not really affect the bottom line we want to go in with the plan that really is going to create that change that's going to affect and change things and so we're, we're still putting the pieces together but uh unfortunately i wasn't able to go to nigeria after the last fight because of my injury but you know you rest assured after this one i definitely will be able to go out there all right kamaru well thank you for your time i really appreciate this and i'll see you uh during the week out in nevada that's ufc 245 three titles on the line headlined by 
this man making his first title defense, Kamaru Usman against Colby Covington, long time in the making. Uh, thanks again. I appreciate this. Uh, thanks, Aaron. That was Kamaru Usman and uh, some fantastic insight from him, especially on his early in his career at the Ultimate Fighter house and uh, you know having to leave his daughter at such a, a formative age and um, you know be part of the Ultimate Fighter for, I, I guess, five weeks. And also the fact that he almost walked away from the UFC and he, you know, he has told that story, I believe, in the past. But I don't think people understand how close he was to walking away. It must be completely demoralizing to keep getting offered these fights, keep accepting them, and then you know, have the person that you're supposed to fight turn it down. And this is something that I had talked to him about for, I guess, before we got the championship, the last two years, about how he just seems like he couldn't get a fight with a ranked opponent. And you got to hand it to Demian Maya. Demian Maya has taken fights against Colby Covington, against Usman, against Ben Askren most recently, who won a fight that he won. Uh, he's fought Jorge Masvidal. Like, this guy's fighting everybody. You got to hand it to Demian Maya and, and give kudos to him because, you know, those are not easy fights and he's risking his ranking and he keeps, you know, he kept winning fights and losing fights, winning fights, losing fights. He, he did get a title shot against uh, Tyron Woodley. So, you know, you got to hand it off, hand it to Demian Maia for that reason. He was, I believe, the first-ranked opponent to face Usman. And um, I think that that was really the moment where he turned the corner. He had a ranking now, and more more ranked fighters were willing to face him. But there was a time where he was coming to all the different events. He was really making himself visible. He was doing lots of interviews. Um, and he still is very, great, very good with the media. Um, but I think that those are those moments that you have to get through as an athlete, as, as a professional athlete. A lot of people have moments of strife or moments of peril where they lose a fight or they lose two in a row and they have to bounce back. Or even like look at Robbie Lawler. He was in the UFC, goes to strike force, kind of you know a, a guy that's win-loss, win, win-loss, ends up winning the championship. Like he, he had to go through a lot of hurdles. Kamaru's hurdle was that nobody would fight him. Like that was, the, that was what he needed to overcome. He needed to stay focused. He needed to keep training. He needed to continue to put in the same work ethic, even though he was never sure whether he was going to get an opponent that would move him up the rankings. And like I said in the interview with him, one of the big issues is that people only look at who people are beating and not how they're beating somebody. Like, look at this kid, Billy Quarantillo, who I spoke about earlier, and how he won that last fight. If he beats another opponent like that, you have to consider ranking him. Because if he's getting 10-7 rounds... Not allowing his opponents to have any success. And I don't know if this, this was a short-notice opponent, so I don't know how, how good Jacob Kilburn is or if he's going to be able to bounce back or if he's, whether or not he's UFC caliber. From that fight, it's hard to, you know, you, you would probably say no as a knee-jerk reaction, but give this guy a full camp, see who he can face. Maybe he ends up having a better, you know, you don't know if it was the lights of the UFC. You, you give these guys another shot. But if he's able to keep beating guys like that one, time, one or two more times, like Usman did early in his career, where he was just running through everybody. He had, against Yakovlev, 30-25, 30-25, 30-25. And Yakovlev is a more grappling-based fighter. And he was able to completely neutralize him. This was early on in his career. You have to look at these kind of things when you're deciding the rankings and say, and there's one guy, Brian Heminger, who I, I respect a lot. He's, he does the rankings. And I noticed that he puts a lot of thought into this which is how people are winning rather than who they're beating. And I think that that is a, a good way to look at the rankings and who you're going to rank. Like even Zabit, it took him a while to get ranked, even though he was like beating people handily, beating good opponents. So if somebody's 
that much better than somebody who is UFC caliber. Now, I'm not saying Quarantillo is because we need, we need to see him test a little bit more. But if like, like somebody like Usman, if you're beating guys that are UFC caliber that are getting wins in the UFC and you're beating them like the way he beat Alexander Yakovlev, you have to take that into consideration when you're making rankings. He beat Leon Edwards early in his career. Look at how good Leon Edwards is now. Leon Edwards is a top four guy in the division. Prior to his fight with, with Usman, Yakovlev had beaten Gray Maynard. He'd beaten George Sullivan. He'd beaten Paul Daly. Like, this is a guy who's beating good quality opponents. And Usman beat him 30-25 on three scorecards. And it still took him after that. That fight was in the you know, middle of 2016. He wasn't ranked for almost another two years. And that's even after he beat Worley Alves, another Ultimate Fighter winner. Beat him handily. Beat Sean Strickland, an up-and-coming prospect. Was 18-1 and at the time. Beat him handily. Knocks out Sergio Moraes in the first round. Like, these are wins that you, you look at and you have to th- say to yourself, like, man, how many other people in this division could do that to that person? And the answer is not many. Even watching him on the Ultimate Fighter, you knew this guy had something. He was pretty raw. But he was beating everybody in the show. He beat Mike Graves. He beat Steve Carl, um, a former WEC or uh, sorry Bellator title challenger. Um, beat Haider Hassan, who's a very good fighter, in the finale to to become the Ultimate Fighter. But you know, he was very raw back then. But you could tell that he knew how to make the, his wrestling work and adapt it to MMA. Like I mentioned him in the interview, you could tell that those things were there. And now you look at where he's at. He's the champion, and he beat Woodley. In all five rounds, like that. Look at who, what Woodley had been doing before that. Like, he finishes Dong Young Kim in, in a minute, finishes Robbie Lawler in two minutes. Lawler's the champion at the time. Beats Stephen Thompson twice, beats Demian Maya, finishes Darren Till, and then Usman goes on and beats him for five straight rounds. Like that, you know. And I don't think I don't think Woodley will be the same after that loss. I don't think he'll be champion again. I mean, he's 37 years old. I would like to think that he is able to do that, is able to bounce back. But we've seen this from Usman before, or sorry, from Woodley before too, where he just one night, like if he if if things don't click, he he can lose. He'll lose. That happened to Laura, against Rory McDonald. This thing, something just wasn't there. And he he said that the same thing happened with Usman. He just couldn't get up for this fight. So I don't want to write off Tyron Woodley. It's the last thing I want to do. But I mean, four, five rounds to nothing against Tyron against Tyron Woodley. Like that's unbelievable. The other title fights on the card. You have Max Holloway. I'm sure he'll be excited for Kawhi's comeback to Toronto this week. He's taking on Alexander Volkanovsky. This is a fun one. Because Volkanovsky, the interesting thing about Alexander Volkanovsky is that when you look at uh, what he has done so far, he's been very dominant, but I still don't know what he is. Does that make sense? Like, his... Against Aldo, he beats him three rounds of striking. He beats Mendez, you know, has some peril in the first round, knocks out Mendez in the second, beats a, a grappling-based fighter like Elkins. Like, I, I still... And, and then he, he finishes an undefeated Jeremy Kennedy uh, early last year. Like, he's, he's a great fighter. But, like, I don't know how good he is. Does that make sense? Like... He could be great. He could win this fight. I'm not like again. I'm not saying that he's not as good as Max Holloway. That's the problem. Is I I'm having trouble recognizing just how good he is. I saw him. I was in Brazil. I was at UFC 237. I watched him beat Aldo three rounds to none, pillar to post. 
Aldo barely had any moments of success. And I've never seen anybody do that to Aldo before. So this guy's good. Like, he's really, really good. But is he good enough to beat a guy like Max Holloway, who's in his prime right now? Remember a year ago, what he did to Brian Ortega. One of the all-time dominant performances in a title fight. A year ago from yesterday. Landed something like 250 significant strikes. Think about that. Like, he put it on Brian Ortega. And then he lost to Poirier. That was, again, an upper weight class. And then we saw him just outwork Frankie Edgar and, and beat Frankie Edgar in almost every round. Now against Volkanovski, you've got a guy 31 years old. You know, Max is still young. Max is still only 28. Just turned 28. And he's taking on a 31-year-old in Volkanovski. Volkanovski is considered the prospect. He's like three years, almost three years older. But uh, he's more than three years older. It's amazing that Holloway's just turned 28. He's so young. And, and look at how much he's accomplished. Well, he could be the greatest of all time when all said and done. If you look at what he's accomplished at this age. But uh, against Volkanovski, like Volkanovski, I, like, I can't wait to watch this fight because I, I think we're going to see just how good Alexander Volkanovski is. And I don't think we've seen it yet. I think we can see, I think he could be even better. He's training with Israel Adesanya, training with Dan Hooker. Like these are guys that every day he's getting great reps in the gym with, with Coach Eugene Behrman. So I think Volkanovski is somebody that uh, we're going to see what this guy's made of this weekend. He can win this fight. And, he, and Holloway can beat him as well. Like, I mean, you know, this is, this is the thing I like about this main and co-main. is like, I don't know how either of these fights are going to go. I really don't. I mean, Usman sounds convincing. It's, it's, he's pretty convinced he's going to win. But I talk to any of these fighters, they're going to be pretty convinced they're going to win. But Volkanovski is, uh, you know, he'll, he'll be giving up a lot of height. He's 5'6". Holloway's 5'11". So Holloway will be uh, taller and longer. Which has always been kind of uh, something to the advantage of Holloway. If you look at who Holloway's lost to, Poirier's probably similar height. McGregor, similar height. McGregor's probably about two inches shorter, maybe an inch or two shorter. Uh, Dennis Bermudez, though, and that, that could be a fight that... Holloway that uh, Volkanovski looks at. It's going to be a different Max Holloway than the one that fought Dennis Bermudez uh, back in 2013. That's like almost seven years ago. But uh, you could still get a sense of the success that somebody of that body type had against Max Holloway and still glean something from that. So I'm interested to see what Volkanovski brings to the table because, like I said, I think Volkanovski is just going to get better right now. Like I don't think I don't think we've seen this guy's ceiling, and I think Max the same thing. You can say the same thing. I think we've seen how good Max is. Max is just going to keep getting better at, at age 28. Like He's going to get better than he is now, which is scary. But this is a matchup that's hard to break down. It's hard to dissect. Because Holloway, as long as he is, has never been a guy that uses range that much to his advantage. He just happens to have that advantage almost all the time. And I think that he fights with that advantage, but doesn't use it specifically as a tool. He's not afraid to get inside the, inside the phone booth with somebody. So this is going to be an interesting one because I think that Holloway has fought better wrestlers and I think he's fought better strikers. But I'm not sure if he's fought anybody who has both of those things together. That, you know, like Volkanovski is one of these guys where his striking is an 8 and his wrestling is probably like a 7 or 8. And then you look at uh, Holloway and who he's beaten. I'm not sure if he has fought anybody like that. Maybe Edgar. It's pretty close. Ortega more wrestling based. Or, or grappling based rather. Submission based. Aldo a lot more striking based. Pettis. Good mix of both, but I don't think his wrestling is quite as good as a, as a Volkanovski or, or an Edgar. Lamas, good wrestling too, but again, I'm not sure if it's quite there with, the, with these guys. 
So this is going to be a really interesting fight. I don't know which way to go on this one. It's going to be close. And then finally, the women's bantamweight championship will be on the line. Amanda Nunez facing the challenger, Jermaine Durandame. They fought each other six years ago. You may as well throw that fight out the window because this is a brand new fight. Durandame's gotten a lot better. Nunez has probably gotten exponentially better. And you've got uh, a fight that I think will be mostly contested on the feet. And if Jermaine Durandame can turn this into a point-fighting match, if she can be more tactical and she can avoid the power of Nunez, I think that this can be a very interesting fight. But I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, Nunez just has that, that crazy power that you don't see in the women's divisions that fighters just aren't used to facing. And I think that Durandame fought Aspen Ladd last time, and Ladd has similar kind of power. She's got, I wouldn't say as powerful as Amanda Nunez, but uh, obviously that was completely neutralized by that, that hook that Durandame threw that ended the fight. Um, you know, some people thought that that might have been early early stoppage, but be that as it may, we now have her next in title contention, and she will cash that ticket this weekend against Amanda Nunez. I don't really know what the best path is outside of winning by decision for Jermaine Durandam. Now, of course, she has power. She could stifle Amanda Nunez, but if this fight gets to the ground at any point in time, I think that that's where we're going to see Nunez uh, find a way to win this fight. I know that it's hard to say whether or not Durandame has gotten better on the ground because we haven't seen a ton of Durandame on the ground in her last five fights since she's last fought Nunez. She's won all five of those fights. That's what I'm interested to see. If, if this gets to the ground, what is Durandame going to have? Because, again, these are two different fighters from the last time they competed. I'm looking forward to this one as well. I think this is a situation where all three titles can turn hit change hands, and all three titles might not. Like, it might be... It's one of those interesting nights where I think we have three very close title fights. I think that in terms of the bantamweight division, Durandame is probably the best challenger still left for Amanda Nunes. And uh, Ketlin Vieira is also on the card, and Ketlin Vieira, if she gets a win, she's probably next in line for the bantamweight title. Although I think Vieira also said she would face Nunes at 145 if if needed, which is interesting. But uh, I think that the... We're going to see a very interesting trilogy of title fights this coming weekend because Usman versus Covington, again, the similarities are just so staggering. Holloway versus Volkanovski, I just don't know what to expect because Volkanovski's gotten so good and Holloway is, is and has been so good that you know I wouldn't be shocked if Volkanovski can pull it off. I think that these guys are close at where they're at in their careers right now. I give an edge to Holloway, but... Not a, not a big one. And then you've got Durandame versus uh, Nunes. And I think that Durandame can, um, can make this a fight. She's a very interesting fighter on the feet. She has that, those credentials, the Thai credentials, Muay Thai credentials. And we're going to see how that one plays out. I'm going to take a look at the odds right now and uh, see if there's anything that stands out. Because I, I gave some picks last week. I listened back to my picks today and I picked Matt Sales. And I can't remember why. Like, I, I never really had this strong lean towards Matt Sales. I gave Matt Sales and Ladd as a uh, parlay, and I, I was like, when did I like Matt Sales in that fight? Because before the fight, I predicted Mitchell by submission in the, the, the pre-fight periscope. I told Dan Tom I'd be throwing a dart at that one. Like, it, you know, if you wanted to throw a dart, that would be where you, where you could throw it there. And I also said Trevor Smith by sub. That obviously didn't happen. But Mitchell, I mean, this, guy's, uh, this guy can sub anybody at any given time. He's phenomenal on the ground. So... I got that one wrong. I did get one right, um, which was Cynthia. Oh, no, sorry. Cynthia Calvillo ended up being a majority draw, so that ended up being a push. So uh, that will just be a, a loss. Uh, Joe 
got Stefan Struve incorrect, but uh, did get another one correct. Let me let me go back and look. Whatever. Joe was one 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 and one. I was like oh one and I guess one no contest or push if you want to call it that. Looking at the odds uh, for this week, there's nothing that really stands out to me huge. Um, I think Chase Hooper at minus 115 is worth a look because I think they're probably going to put him in a position where he can succeed. I think if you can get him uh, by sub, that might be a good way to look at this one. I like Brandon Moreno a lot at plus 140. I think that might be the most intriguing of the lines. And Heinish at minus 150, I like. You could parlay him with somebody if there's somebody that you really like. Marais at minus 200 is too big of a price against Aldo, even though if you've seen the recent pictures of Jose Aldo at 135 pounds, he looks emaciated. But uh, I posted the pictures. Helwani responded saying, I don't like seeing Jose Aldo like this. And then Conor McGregor responded to Helwani saying, no, he looks great. I mean, he said more than that, but along the lines of, you know, he looks good. Looks strong. So, I mean, if Conor McGregor's saying that and... McGregor himself looks pretty emaciated when he was cutting down to 145. It's uh, an interesting thing to see. Holloway minus 170. I don't know about that. Covington plus 155 I think is worth a look if uh, if you think this fight is as even as I do. I don't think Usman has that much of an edge where you could justify the minus 175. So that's that's kind of what I see here. I always like throwing a dart on Saunders by submission because he's so dangerous with his subs, but uh, Matt Brown's a good fighter. Like, I, that's going to be a tough one. All right. So that's, uh, that's that card. Frankie Edgar is replacing Brian Ortega against uh, the Korean Zombie. I can't remember if I spoke about this last week, but I'll just give you a quick, uh, quick two cents on this one, which is that I don't really get it from... Like, I get it from a promotional standpoint. You need to, you need to fill a main event. And you need to put you need to have something, especially in South Korea when you've got the Korean zombie headlining. You need an opponent for him. Makes sense for Edgar. He's in camp already. He won't need to cut down to bantamweight like he planned to. Although he might do it a month later against Corey Sandig. And if you'll believe what uh, is being pushed in the marketing materials right now, but uh, I mean, I still think this is a very good fight. And I think it, you know it's the fight they wanted to make for the anniversary show. It's good that it's being booked. I just don't get it from the career perspective of Edgar. Like, don't you want to be hyper-focused on 135, try to get that title shot at 135 sooner rather than later? But Frankie Edgar's been a gamer for the UFC for so long. He's like a reliable guy that they always call upon to, uh, to do this sort of thing, to fight whoever they need him to fight. And he's gotten title shots as a result. And I think that should he win this fight, move down to bantamweight and win once, you might see him next in line for a bantamweight title shot. And maybe that those promises could have been made for all we know. But uh, I think this is an interesting fight. And uh, again, uh, Korean Zombie is a favorite. I don't necessarily agree with that. But there you have it. All right, before we wrap this bad boy up, we've got one more interview to get to. And that is Ben Saunders, who will be taking on Matt Brown. Matt Brown was contemplating retirement after his last fight, decided to come back. And uh, this is a fun one between two longtime veterans of the sport. We've got Ben Saunders, Ultimate Fighter 6. Which season was Matt Brown in? I'm going to look this up. I can't remember every season of every that every fighter's been in. But he was in the Ultimate Fighter, Team Rampage versus Team Forest, which is season 7. So one season apart. So you had uh, the last man standing from season 6 was Ben Saunders. And I believe the last man standing in the UFC of season 7 is 
none other than Matt Brown. Uh, Matt Brown. And uh, we now have Ben Saunders, who will join us on the TSN MMA show. I'm joined now by one of the most entertaining fighters in the UFC, the last man standing from The Ultimate Fighter Season 6. It's Killa B, Ben Saunders. We just chatted for a quick minute uh, off the air because I saw that you had a twin brother, Joe Saunders, who was a member of Florida State Legislature, a, a big advocate for LGBT rights. Um, and I saw that he had a different birthday than you. Walk me through what happened there. Uh, yeah, my mom uh, went into labor, and actually I had him at a and I was born 12.02. So even though we're twins, um, we got separate birthdays, which is probably one of the rarest things that twins could ever get. So I'm, like, super stoked about that. Having my own birthday is uh, – it, it definitely individualizes you from a twin. Yeah, that's pretty cool because – you guys get to, like you said, celebrate a completely different birthday. Like, he'll have a cake one day, you'll have a cake the other day, and you don't need to share the birthday, which is, again, like you said, a very unique thing that uh, twins can, can do. Yeah, like, even if we did, um, I mean, I, looking back on it, I feel we we probably had a lot of uh, joint parties and, and birthdays together since they were a day apart. But um, to be able to the older we got to be able to be like, no, today's my day. <laughs> no, today's my day. Uh, I I personally feel it was always uh, a lot cooler to be like, no, your day's done. Your birthday's over. It is now my birthday, and I always got to finish off the year. <laughs> that's uh, that's a lot of fun. So are you guys are you guys uh, identical or fraternal twins? Uh, we are fraternal. Um, he... he I feel like he is very into and very good at verbal uh, fighting, and I feel that I don't need to speak so much, um, and I like to do it physically. <laughs> I was going to ask how that all came together. So you guys are, are growing up together, obviously, at the same home, and the, the paths are so radically different. Like You watched UFC 1, and you knew you wanted to be a, a mixed martial artist, and your brother veered into politics. Like How did, how did that all come about? Um, man, honestly, I couldn't tell you what really gave him the, uh, you know what? It probably was my family just would always, every time we would get together, it would just end up turning into a verbal battle over political stuff and I guess politicians and who people believed in and thought and, you know, all that stuff. And I was just like, man, I always saw some of the negativity and fighting from it that I was like, oh, God, politics. I hate everything about it. I want nothing to do with it. Uh, and I know that it's not really always um, seen to be good to just, like, kind of stay out of it and avoid it. But for me, it always seemed kind of like it caused confrontation, negativity. And most people, I think, argue and fight about it so much and i'm just like nah i'm not interested and i think for him he he saw it as like um probably like a go-to of like you know everyone uh is into it you know in my family and everyone uh i guess would be very uh accepted 
or uh, would accept um, uh, a profession like that, as opposed to mine, which is very controversial, I feel. It's always been controversial. Um, I mean, it's better now, obviously, over the years, it's gotten better and better. But uh, for sure, when I first started fighting, it was, I mean, it was, Kind of don't tell my parents, don't even let them know. And then when it went, once it finally came to that, it was kind of like, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? This is crazy. This is nonsense. But then when I made it on the Ultimate Fighter Season 6, uh, that actually was the turning point for my family because they were like, oh, my gosh, like, he, he, he actually made it. He's, he's pretty good. And even though it's violent and the violence isn't always looked uh, positively upon um, my passion towards the martial arts and everything. Uh, they're able to see the, the positive side of it. I think my best, my favorite part of that story is that you paint him. I mean, yourself as like the pacifist and that's why you didn't get into politics. <laughs> like that, that, he, that because he uh, would like to get into all these confrontations with people at, in, at the, at the dinner table. You, you were, you wanted to shy away from that because, <laughs> because you were the pacifist of the family. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it really, ultimately, man, like, I always wanted to be just a samurai. So, like, martial arts has always been kind of my thing. But for martial arts, for me, it was about, like, respect, honor, loyalty, like, all the perseverance, respect, like, all, all the the positive things that come from, from martial arts. And I try my best to stay clear of negative things that I guess I, I have no control over. Um, I feel that through my path, I'm able to control a lot of what I'm able to focus on and what uh, I let or bring into my life as opposed to, man, in politics, I, I feel it's just negative left and right. And there's always something and someone to argue with you about your point of view and everything that um, I'm not really down with that so much. Well, it was Thanksgiving last week. Did you guys have a big Thanksgiving dinner? I'm, I'm curious about the conversation that took place there. No, uh, honestly, man, in the fight game for me, it uh, my schedule changes so sporadically year to year that it's kind of like, oh, do I get to maybe have Thanksgiving with family or Christmas and New Year's? Uh, this year, I've, I've been out here in Las Vegas just grinding and working my ass off since I came out here, but I get to uh, spend Christmas and New Year's with my family. So we will have lots to talk about then. <laughs> Did you do anything for Thanksgiving with, with, I guess, some of the fellow fighters that are out in Las Vegas uh, that are away from their families? Yeah, yeah, I got to I got to spend uh, Thanksgiving with friends and, and my coaches and whatnot. Uh, we still had a good time. Um, you know, I'm obviously still kind of on my diet and everything, so I'm, I definitely wasn't like – indulging and trying to like uh, I guess let gluttony get to me and just binge and go crazy uh, or be like oh we'll, we'll save it for the cheat day and then we'll just go all in but uh, I don't know I've, I've always been about um, my diet and just you know eating right and eating healthy so I was able to enjoy myself but uh, you know I, I listen to my body I didn't, I didn't really need to uh, go crazy and definitely I think I skipped most of the sweets <laughs> Well, we we talked uh, about the Ultimate Fighter season six. Nobody from that season, aside from yourself, has fought in the UFC for the last five plus years. Like you, you really are the last man standing from that season. I would, I bet, if you asked me from 
from the first time I got on the show, I probably would have told you that's exactly how it was going to go. I don't believe there was anyone on that show that really dedicated their lives. Again, I saw the first one at 10 years old and dedicated my life to it ever since. I knew this is what I wanted to do. I knew I'll be doing this for the rest of my life. You know, I'll be doing martial arts till I die. So um, I'm just trying to get as much experience, you know, uh, in competition in until uh, it's it's time to cross over. And then once I start crossing over, it'll be more about, you know, uh, passing on to the next generation. I like how you call it crossing over. I've, you know, I read an article about you on UFC.com. It doesn't appear like retirement's even on your radar at this point. <laughs> Dude, seriously, man. Is Edison Silva still fighting? <laughs> How old was how old was uh, Dan Henderson and uh, hell Chuck Liddell and, and uh, Randy, Randy <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So like I look at those guys and I understand the evolution is so extreme, um, and it's going to be never ending and nonstop. That uh, you know the young guns are coming in. They got blueprints. They're able to you know have the path and everything they need. So they'll be able to come into the game a little bit quicker, but there's no doubt in my mind that my experience, my knowledge, and my wisdom are going to go a long way. And uh, my experience to boot, you know, it's just, it's a, it, I, I see the positivity um, in my age. And, uh, and as long as my body's able to do it, uh, the fight game, as long as it can, I'm definitely going to be a part of it. But also, man, not too many people really have, dedicated even the ones that dedicate their lives to the sport they're not year-round dedicated you know i can't tell you like i'm i don't take vacations you know i don't have days off this is year-round because i know the short the short period of time that i have to be able to compete at the highest level is so limited that i'm always trying to eat healthy i've always paid attention to my diet and try to lean towards vitality and do the make the correct decisions to allow longevity in the career. Now, there's this guy you might have heard of. He said he was going to retire uh, following his last fight. That guy's name is Matt Brown. He's your opponent uh, at a UFC 245. Uh, this must be a fun one for you. I mean, looking at both of your careers, they're so similar. Both of the, you know, both in the way that you guys came up in the Ultimate Fighter, the way that you guys fight, um, the way that you guys respect your opponents. This must just be a perfect matchup for you. Man, like when, when my uh, management hit me up and gave me the name and the date, it was, it was perfect. Like, just like you said, man, uh, I've, I've had a lot of respect and really, really loved uh, watching Matt Brown fight throughout the years. But I thought we were supposed – we were going to meet a long time ago. So to, to finally get the chance to uh, be able to compete against him – and, and test my skills is uh, is for sure uh, a big, big part of my motivation leading into this fight. How much rolling have you done over the years with Tony Ferguson? I know that you guys are both 10th Planet guys. Um, Back when I was able to go out to 10th Planet HQ and he would go to HQ um, on occasion, we did get to get some like drills and, and some... Uh, some work in together, but uh, as of late, he never really came to uh, Ten Planet headquarters. Um, he would kind of, man, it actually seems really cool. He would, he would, he's been building like like his own camp. Like he'll go to up to Big Bear and just create like his own training camp environment 
and then bring Eddie and various people out there uh, and other coaches and training partners to uh, to get that work in. So um, it's it's been a while, man, but uh, I'm really, really stoked to uh, see that the Tony versus Khabib is actually, well, supposed to happen. You know, <laughs> I, I think this is three to five times that it was supposed to happen or something like that. The fifth so I'm time. not going to change it. Yeah, fifth Six. time. Fifth time has been booked. Yeah, okay, fifth. That's so crazy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, definitely not trying to jinx it. Just crossing my fingers it actually happens and that they both come in as healthy as possible so we get the fight we're all looking for. I wanted to pick your brain on it because you have uh, you fought another AKA guy with a big wrestling base in uh, John Fish, and he was actually the one that prompted you to start working more offensively off your back and, uh, and having a solution for um, you know wrestling-based fighters. Tony, I believe, is going to embrace the takedown. I think that if Khabib takes him down, you know, that's that's just another way that Tony Ferguson can use his multitude of weapons. I think that's what makes this such an interesting fight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tony's a savage everywhere, but he's definitely no joke off his back. And honestly, other than his chin and his durability, I think his cardio is king. His cardio is insane. The pace that he puts on... And he's like me. He's super tall and lanky for the weight class. He was 170 before dropping to 55. I was 85 before dropping to 70. So we have a lot of similarities uh, physically as as far as body type uh, goes there. But I really think that if the fight goes rounds four and five, it is for sure going to be in Tony's favor. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, this is one that I think a lot of people are, are looking forward to. Why do you think it is that so few people do work on offense off their back? I mean, you know, recently I saw Charles Oliveira had a fight, and I said, stylistically, I think him versus Khabib would be a fun fight. I know he's not in the title picture, but, you know, I, I like seeing these co- these contrasts of styles in fights and, and seeing what would happen in kind of these fantasy fights. That's kind of the issue that I have sometimes with the rankings and with the pecking order in MMA is like sometimes I think that the champion could get beat by like the 14th ranked guy, but not like the second ranked guy just because matchups are everything in this sport. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree more. Coming up, I was a huge, huge fan of uh, Anderson Silva. But the reality is, in my personal opinion, if some of the best strikers in the world at that time were thrown in there, um, there's a good chance that he might have lost or we would have got a much different uh, chain of events as opposed to, unfortunately, all the top wrestlers would always take those motherfuckers out and then those wrestlers would come in and have to fight uh, Anderson and Anderson's style was just too too much. Uh, I mean, that wasn't every time in styles, but I, I, I feel a lot of times that's kind of how it played out. And... Uh, I think style, stylistic matchups uh, is, is always how it goes. It's definitely not always going to be uh, about who the number one contender is. I think styles of guys outside of even the top ten, um, if they have a particular skill set versus a particular person, you know, might be able to uh, really, really pull something crazy off and, and shock the world. I think that first Chael Sonnen fight against Anderson Silva might still be the single craziest moment I've experienced watching this sport. Oh, man, I was live for that. It was insane. <laughs> I could not believe that. I, 
I couldn't believe what the the just the amount of I guess output that Chill had going in that fight. It was oh, it was not stopped for him to come out with that. Beautiful triangles armbar was well. It was and Anderson Silva worthy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, the, it was just kept getting crazier and crazier because that first round happened. You see, Chael's able to take him down and hold him there, and you're like, "Ah, this isn't gonna last." And then he does it a second round. It's like, "Oh, okay." Third round, <laughs> fourth round. Then in the fifth round, you're like, "This is happening. We're gonna have a new champion. Anderson Silva's gonna lose." And then <laughs> you know, he throws up that triangle, and the rest is history. Oh, I know. And he's got to, like, it's got to kill him almost every day. Yeah. <laughs> like, just waking up and being like, oh, my God, four and a half rounds, I was winning. <laughs> well, and Chael also made a promise to his father that he'd be a UFC champion one day. So I, I'm sure it haunts him, honestly. Like, I think that that moment yeah. probably will haunt him for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no doubt. Well, Ben, thank you for this. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, I, I am interested to hear about how you know the, the holiday conversation goes once uh, once this fight's done. You get home to the uh, the Saunders clan, uh, and we can discuss right. that next time we speak. Absolutely. That was Ben Saunders on the TSN MMA show. Go to tsn.ca/ufc for all of our coverage of UFC 245 this week. Las Vegas, Nevada, big big event. So many big names on this particular show. Lots of former champions. Lots of current champions. It's going to be uh, one to watch. That's for sure. Uh, Thank you for tuning in this week. We'll be back next week with more Cage Conversation. Cage Convo, tsn.ca slash UFC, my weekly segment. I I encourage you to check that out as well. So we'll keep the conversation going next week. Hopefully Joe and I will reunite and we'll make some magic happen. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.